Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From The Guardian, scientists have finally done it. We can now steer lightning bolts with lasers. Finally. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that sounds good. I don't know that I understand it, but. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what it involved was firing powerful laser pulses at thunderclouds over several months last year. And surprisingly, that work paves the way for laser-based lightning protection systems at airports, launch pads, and tall buildings. Because right now, we just use metal rods, right? Mm. But the area that metal rods can protect is limited to just a few meters or tens of feet if you're here in America or the UK. (laughs) So the hope is to extend that protection to a few hundred meters if we have enough energy in the laser. And It's crazy, but this is how it works. So lightning bolts, they're basically just huge electrical discharges. And the charge in a bolt of lightning is so intense that it is about five times hotter than the surface of the sun. Crazy Mm. amounts of energy. More than a billion bolts strike Earth each year. And yeah, people do die from it and get injured from it. And boy, we got property damage that can run into tens of billions of dollars. So writing in the journal Nature Photonics, Colleagues in Switzerland describe how they carted a powerful laser. They just brought it up to the top of the Santis Mountain in northeastern Switzerland and parked it near a 124-meter-high telecom tower that is struck by lightning about 100 times a year. So it's, Dr. You know, Evil is so proud right. of that laser <laughs> to the mountaintop. Yeah, they mm-hmm. carted this giant laser to the top of a mountain and fired rapid laser pulses at thunderclouds for a total of more than six hours. And they set up these instruments to demonstrate that the laser diverted the course of four upward lightning discharges over the course of the experiment. So that kind of shakes out to a pretty low success. Well, yeah. And the thing is, they said they're diverting it. They're not preventing the lightning from striking. They're just saying strike somewhere else. So like if you live near something that they're trying to protect, (laughs) you've just increased the lightning strikes your house is going to get. Yeah, (laughs) that's exactly right. You made an excellent point. The laser diverts lightning bolts. And the way it does this is it basically just etches an easier path for an electrical discharge to flow along. So when laser pulses are fired into the sky, a change in the refractive index of the air makes them shrink and become so intense that they ionize air molecules around them. And this leads to a long chain of what the researchers call filaments in the sky. I can't wait for that album to come out, (laughs) where air (laughs) molecules rapidly heat up and race away at supersonic speeds leaving a channel of low-density ionized air. And these channels, they only last for like milliseconds, but they're more electrically conductive than the surrounding air. And so it makes an easier path for the lightning to follow. Like, oh, I gotta go somewhere. That looks really good. And the laser is powerful enough to be a risk to the eyes of overflying pilots. Oh, no. So during the experiments, air traffic had to be closed over the test site. But the scientists still think this technology could be useful as 
launch pads and airports, they often have these designated areas where these no-fly restrictions apply. Yeah, that seems like a real recipe for disaster. We're going to use this thing that blinds pilots to protect airports. Yes. Like, well, we do it in a no-fly zone. I, I don't it, care. It's, a, it's an airport. Like, you can't. It's all a fly well, zone. It's true, but because it's an airport, it deserves that much more protection from lightning, right? Mm. So here's my proposal. Take, for example, we got Carson Creek Ranch right by Austin International. Now, they already have music festivals there. Mm -hmm. Just do this during Pink Floyd concerts All and right. you can gain right. another income stream. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from newatlas.com and we're sticking on the tech theme with Atlas Robot Learns Perception, Object Manipulation, and Sick Flips. <laughs> Oh, I would totally watch uh, robots skateboarding and snowboarding if they ever get that good. <laughs> yeah, so Boston Dynamics continues to astound us with progress on Atlas, its humanoid robot. And in the new video, Atlas goes to work on a construction site showing off some fascinating new abilities spiced up with some acrobatics that get most of us sacked. Now the Atlas team is turning its work in a more practical direction. In a video released today, Atlas needs to find a heavy plank, pick it up, and use it to bridge a gap in its path. It needs to pick up a heavy tool bag and balance with it as it runs across the plank and executes a saucy little jump up to a higher <laughs> level. Saucy. It, then, <laughs> it then needs to throw the tool bag up onto another level taller than itself using a jumping, twisting, heaving motion. Atlas then pushes a heavy crate down onto the floor and uses it as a platform for a sick trick, an inverted 540-degree flip that Atlas engineer Robin Dietz says requires all the strength available in almost every single joint on the robot. The dynamic path building on display here means Atlas has to quickly and naturally interact with an environment that's not static, a big perceptual step forward from the static obstacles it dealt with in its parkour phase. Take the task of picking up the tool bag. Atlas spots the bag on the floor, and as it's running over to it, it builds its own internal model of the shape it needs to lift, and plans how its gripper handle will address the object. How should it prepare its body before trying to lift it? Where should it hold the bag if it wants to run? What about jump? And, you know, just reading the descriptions and watching it, I'm like, gee, that sounds a lot like what I do as a human. Which is <laughs> You know, the entire point. Yeah, right? but at the same time, even if it's like, okay, I know I have to pick up a plank to cross this gap, the knowledge of I need to get across this gap. I'm able to bridge things. So let's look for something to bridge. Oh, there's something that like there's a lot of analytical steps mm -hmm. that I think they're really far away from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Logical daisy chain. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But the things it can do are pretty remarkable. Though I have I have watched a lot of those videos and even the, the four legged ones mm -hmm. that people try to knock over. I get really emotionally invested in the four legged ones because I have watched like them try to knock it over. And my instinct is cool. like, hey, hey. Stop that. Don't hurt my Don't friend. Do yeah, I'm like, because, you know, kicking a four-legged thing is not cool. Mm -hmm. If it makes you feel any better, one of the first deployment of those dog things is as cop dogs. Wow. Yeah, makes it easier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next link. So this also comes from the new Atlas. Wheeled robots 
uses a locust antennae to identify odors. Oh, like a real? Like a real locust antennae. Oh, no. Wow. So we have already, we're playing with electronic noses is what we call them. They use gas sensors to detect specific odors. Think breath analyzer in a Mm. DWI. Mm. We are developing them to sniff urine for traces of cancer, environmental monitoring, and even maybe an AI sommelier. Yeah, the sommelier world is in need of a bit of disruption. They've been coasting on ego for far too long. (laughs) Right, right. Well, scientists have now incorporated a locust antennae (laughs) into this odor-identifying robot. So locusts and other insects can smell via their antennae. The team took a single antennae, attached it to a computer, and put it all on a wheeled robot. They then exposed it to eight different odors, lemon, geranium, marzipan. Oh, that's rather specific. I know, right? Yeah, I thought marzipan was an odd choice. There could be criminals hiding out in bakeries and you need to find them. Like, come on, you don't know. Uh, So when exposed to the odors, the antennae create electrical signals. So then they can take those and establish specific electrical patterns of each scent. But they kept going. Because, of course, they would. And so after the initial experiment was done, they just messed around with different and unusual smells like each of the different types of scotch whiskey. Which they had on hand. (laughs) Right. Or or they needed a write-off for. They needed to put that money somewhere. Let's buy whiskey. (laughs) They concluded, though, that compared to standard measuring devices, the insect's nose in their system is about 10,000 times higher than other devices currently in use. Hmm. And because it's on wheels, it can follow the odor. So, like, which is worse, a Boston Dynamics cop robot that is mostly made of bug parts or that is mostly <laughs> made of human parts? Like, I, you know, is, is RoboCop worse or better than a giant locust with but a listen, steel you skeleton? You only need the antenna from the locust. And so now I'm just picturing this really cute four-legged Boston Dynamics with these little dealy boppers <laughs> going, mmm, marzipan. <laughs> or, mmm, I can smell your drugs. <laughs> no, they're putting dogs out of work. I'm, I'm against it. <laughs> I agree, because dogs do love that job. I mean, we need a dog union. That's all it comes down mm-hmm. to. That's right. That's right. We don't have one in Austin? Uh, probably <laughs> do. <laughs> All right, next link. Next link. This next article comes from McGill University in Canada, and it asks a very important question. Why is Pepto-Bismol pink? It's hmm. not naturally occurring pink, and it's... No, no, that's not a naturally occurring color. Oh, <laughs> I can't tell if you're actually surprised if you're making fun of me. Nope. Today I learned. I mean, it's such an unnatural color. I figured, well, you know, why not be pink? You know? Right. Well, yeah, you never know. But it isn't. Uh, So first, (laughs) let's dig into what Pepto-Bismol actually is. The active ingredient is bismuth subsalicylate, which breaks down into bismuth and salicylic acid once it hits the stomach. If that sounds familiar, it's because salicylic acid is the main ingredient in most acne medications and wart removers and is closely related to acetyl salicylic acid, better known as aspirin. Mm. But in this case, the salicylic acid doesn't really do much other than stabilize the bismuth until you're ready to take it. Once it's separated, bismuth rapidly bonds with various compounds in the stomach to form bismuth salts which are very poorly absorbed and therefore remain in the digestive tract doing the good work, including antimicrobial effects, increased fluid reabsorption, and decreased intestinal secretions and inflammation. 
And this wide variety of effects is why Pepto is good for such a large range of digestive problems, including, if you remember the jingle, nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea, and also the article weirdly notes cholera. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't know why they didn't mention dysentery, since we're getting all Oregon Trail about it, but it (laughs) presumably would be good for that, too. Bismuth is technically a metal, and it's also commonly used these days in applications where we used to use lead because it has a similarly low melting point and is, of course, not incredibly toxic. Interestingly, this includes modern bullets, where you would think being toxic kind of wouldn't matter, except it is a bad idea for hunters to be poisoning the food they're about to eat. And we do Mm -hmm. like to pretend in this country that most bullets are still used for hunting. (laughs) Sorry, got a little dark there. (laughs) (laughs) Nonetheless, you probably have noticed bullets are not pink. And indeed, bismuth is not the thing that makes Pepto-Bismol pink. Bismuth in its raw form is actually a beautiful, like, dark iridescent silver. And in the liquid formulation of bismuth subsalicylate that you buy at the pharmacy, it's beige. So why is the product pink? Well, it turns out that the guy who developed it in the early 1900s decided to dye it pink for completely unknown reasons. And (laughs) it became so iconic that Procter & Gamble have simply stuck with it. Huh. One P&G spokesperson told a reporter in 1992 that the color was probably intended to appeal to children. And while that may have been the case in the beginning, it's probably not an association they want to advertise now because we now know that Pepto-Bismol is not safe for children under 12. Oh. And in fact, neither is aspirin. What? Because both can trigger a rare developmental disease known as Reyes syndrome. Another notable side effect is that it can sometimes turn your poop dark black. Yep. Yes, it does. Yeah. This is actually harmless, and it happens when bismuth bonds with sulfur in the body to form bismuth sulfide, which can be more or less likely for an individual depending on whether they've recently eaten a lot of sulfur-rich foods like broccoli or if they happen to be taking a sulfa drug, which includes some common antibiotics. Mm. At any rate, it turns out that the chemist who dyed the original formula pink was onto something even if he didn't know it at the time. Because studies have shown that the color of a medication influences how effective patients believe it's going to be and thus how effective it actually is. Patients are more likely to perceive warm colored pills as stimulants and cooler colors as sedatives, which means if your sedative is red, it's not going to work as well because people think it won't work as well. And this phenomenon even extends to the medication packaging as well. Yeah. Sleep Aid and Benadryl are the exact same medication. Yeah. So the Sleep Aid is blue. It's just diphenhydramine is all it is. So if it's pink, it's for allergies and you'll be fine. Blue's for sleepy. Exactly. Exactly. Other studies have shown that people perceive red or pink colored things as tasting sweeter than they actually do. And that's why children's medication is more likely to be marketed as bubblegum or cherry flavored rather than, say, blue raspberry, even though that flavor is popular in other contexts. There's also been studies, this isn't mentioned in this article, but stuff where, like, if you're told the pill is more expensive, it's going to be more effective because of a placebo effect (laughs) where you Mm -hmm. think a more expensive pill is more effective. It's wild. I mean, I get very iffy on the placebo effect because on the one hand, I'm like, but it does work. So, like, isn't that what we want? Mm -hmm. But also, you're lying to yourself, and that's never a good state of mind to be in. (laughs) Unless you're lying to yourself to get healthy. 
Like, right. what's Yeah, I would absolutely buy a placebo pill. Yeah. Just put a blank line on it and let me write what I'm trying to fix in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll take all the help I can get, you know? You know what we could do? Take a packet of Tic Tacs and go to the mall where they can write things on a grain of rice and oh. just put what you want on there. Problem solved. Yeah, see how well yeah. it works. Bingo. <laughs> And if all of this is a little too pop sciencey for you and you want something a little more hardcore, the article does link to a do-it-yourself lab experiment where you can extract the bismuth from your Pepto-Bismol <gasps> and see its iridescent metal sheen for yourself. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. It does require, like, muriatic acid, which not everybody has around the house. <laughs> but I, it looked kind of cool. I mean, what, it seemed very doable other than this one ingredient that you have to get on wherever you get dangerous yeah. chemicals without getting yeah, on a Go and search for muriatic acid <laughs> exactly. online and see what happens. That's right. Yeah, give it a shot. Next link. Next link. The BBC's Future Planet has a lovely piece on the plan to save Italy's dying olive trees with dogs. Because dogs oh. still have jobs and they're going to Italy. <laughs> we'll see how long. Well... I mean, the technology with <laughs> locust antennae sniffy robots is still developing, but we've already got the reigning heavyweight champ that happened to just love us. Mm -hmm. And that's so central to the kind of temperament that these Italians are looking for. Because you may not know, there is a deadly and hard to detect disease that has been decimating the olive trees of southern Italy for the past decade. So hmm. some of the oldest and most monumental trees have just gone up and they've become desiccated husks because of this disease. It's called specifically Xylella fastidiosa. And it's a type of bacterium that clogs the xylem. And the xylem is the vessel that carries water from the roots to the leaves of a plant. You know, pretty important. Mm -hmm. So this bacterium will clog that xylem portion of trees and other woody plants. And it basically just slowly chokes them to death. Sadly, spittlebugs, a very common insect, spread the disease when they bite an infected leaf. The bacteria gets into their spit and the bugs uh -huh. transmit the disease when they feed on the next healthy plant. At this time, there are no known cures for the disease. And once infected, the plant slowly dries up, though some infected plants manage to survive without showing symptoms. There are several strains of xylella and together they affect 595 plant species worldwide at the last wow. count. And over the past century, Xylella has decimated orange fields in Brazil, vineyards in Southern California, in Taiwan, they've even hit pear trees. Moro Juriana, the owner of Vivai Juriana, has personal experience of a Xylella attack. When plant inspectors found infected plants in his greenhouse, he had to dispose of about a million dollars worth of plants. Quote, mm -hmm. we were too superficial in countering Xylella in the first years. There are no more monumental olive trees left. Ugh, they didn't catch it early enough. So he, in particular, wishes that controls had been tighter and faster, but... The regional governor, President Michel Emiliano, was initially skeptical about a link between xylella and the rapid desiccation of olive trees. 
the whole thing feels like a COVID allegory in the plant world. Right. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. I mean, why is a political leader being asked whether this bacteria is causing this agricultural disease? That well, seems... you know, money has to address the problem. Right, right. He's being asked to spend it. So, yeah, right. That but that's being generous because <laughs> the scientists working on trying to stop the bacteria they weren't just disbelieved. They were put on trial. They were accused. Oh, oh get this. They were accused of spreading the bacteria themselves. Eventually, oh. all charges were dropped. And yeah, Italy was investigated by the European Commission for an, quote, inadequate response. <laughs> so Nicola de Noia, an agronomist from Toronto and the general director of Uniprol, which is Italy's largest olive oil producers consortium, he used to work with molecular detection dogs for uncovering drugs and explosives. And he was like, could they do this with the tree disease? And he put together funds, called in the cavalry, and they made the Xylella detection dogs. I highly recommend looking at the article because, yes, there are pictures. It takes really special dogs and special individuals to train them in order to become detection dogs. Some detection dogs have worked in forensics, in particular, for rape cases for the Dutch police, where they can identify rapists by their semen, which is the first oh. I've ever heard of that. Makes total sense. But oh, man, mm. like I would yeah. totally watch that CSI show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I would. <laughs> <laughs> but training a new dog is not easy. There are some dog breeds like the Springer Spaniel, German Shepherd, Cocker Spaniel, and Labrador that are more likely to become these super smellers and work longer shifts in a self-directed way. But that's not enough because a dog's personality has to be important too. Because unless we have something the dog wants so strongly that he would almost be willing to kill for it, we can't move forward to train him. Like, it has to be that obsessive dog. Right. Aggressive, entitled dogs is what you want. So, like... <laughs> there you go. So a common object that they'll use to work with and start to train with is just a hollow rubber toy. And so what they do is they start to, like, break down the toy into smaller and smaller pieces. And the smaller the rubber fragment, the more the dog concentrates on finding it and speeds up its sniffing frequency. So once the dog is taught how to indicate it's found the toy, that's when we start inserting the target smell. And there are different ways to do it. Sometimes you can pair it so it's like target smell with the rubber toy. Or you can contrast it. Like here, you don't have the toy. But as the dog looks for it, when it passes by the target odor, it receives the reward. Mm. So for now, we figured out something that can work. We just need to get dogs super trained to smell out all the things and we'll be okay. I mean, I personally think everybody should have their own doggy detector that just stays with them all the time and goes to work with them. And yeah, I would train it to seek out people I don't like and alert me when they're coming so I can like change my path <laughs> so I don't ever have to run into somebody, you know? <laughs> all right, next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com. It's titled, Do AI Art Tools Break Copyright Laws? Two new lawsuits will find out. I mean, they'll find out whether legally they do. I think ethically, <laughs> people have different opinions, whatever they find. But yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, that's for sure. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's what always happens with these sorts of major paradigm changing technologies. It's ultimately the law that mm -hmm, decides mm -hmm. what culture becomes. Yeah. So to build an AI art generator, engineers train their algorithms on large databases of photos, drawings, or graphics. And a lot of the most popular AI art tools got their databases by scraping content from the web, often without explicit permission from the artists who created images. 
The AI art industry now faces two lawsuits, one from artists in the US and the other from Getty Images in the UK, arguing that AI art generators stole billions of images in violation of intellectual property rights. Some AI art tools actually include the Getty Images watermark in the graphics they produce, making it plain how big of a role Getty's intellectual property plays in the algorithms. The one thing that is important to note is that there's been a misconception where because a signature or a stock photo imprint or something like that shows up on an image, people say, oh, well, it totally copied that from a specific image and then just threw it in there. It doesn't really work like that. It's more of a probabilistic calculator, essentially, based on all the images that you've fed it. And because there's a bunch of those Getty image stock posts, they will tend to get generated. Now, all that being said, the usage of that is probably the big thing that comes under legal contention here. Mm -hmm. So a Stability AI spokesperson in reference to the artist's class action lawsuit says anyone that believes that this isn't fair use does not understand the technology and misunderstands the law. The company declined Mm. to comment on the Getty Images lawsuit, saying it hasn't received any documents about the case. Midjourney and DeviantArt did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Though you might count on U.S. courts to lean in favor of corporate goals, there are giant corporations on both sides of the fight. Mm-hmm. I think that's honestly what makes this up in the air for me, because mm-hmm. if it was just artists, I would say the artists are going to get ruled against every single time. Yeah. But Getty Images yeah. has a lot of money behind <laughs> They've them. They've got the money. they got the lawyers. Yeah. yeah. And other source imagery has been used, too, like databases of medical photography was used Mm. as well. And this is actually one of the big news stories tangentially that popped up, which is an artist actually found her own images from her medical data in the data set that's used for the generation. So, like, she found her face in there for Uh. real. That doesn't mean it would generate her face because, you know, there's only a few images of her face. But that brings HIPAA into it. That's a medical photo, not a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's a really, really big deal. Mm. So as of now, the owners of the source material aren't compensated, and a number of companies are already turning to AI tools as a cheap or free alternative to flesh-based content creators. Flesh-based <laughs> content creators. Wow. Yeah. Just really crank the dystopia up to 11 for that sentence. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and there's definitely an element of, like, if I said, write a review for this book, if there aren't enough reviews of that book out... The thing that ChatGPT comes up with is largely identical to the few reviews Mm. that do exist. And you can tell. And so, you know, there's the argument of, oh, well, it's using so many millions of, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes Mm -hmm. there isn't as much reference material and it's really just taking what somebody else already Mm -hmm. wrote. And I think they can find a way to eventually incorporate that in. Like we did with music. You use samples, you get a percentage of that. Even if you've Mm -hmm. destroyed that sample in a way that no longer represents the original, it's still in there and we still find ways of paying back the original artist or the original record label. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and I actually see this being a unexpected but real use case for NFTs, where mm-hmm. content that gets created ends up becoming stamped to a public record that anybody can look at. And so the management of what data is allowed to be fed into these AIs eventually has to be gone through some sort of verification process, right, where right. you have to say, yes, we're legally allowed to use this thing, and we know mm-hmm. because it's been minted to the blockchain at this time, it has this consent to be used. Because, like, these tools are out of the bag, really, and we're probably going to see even more of that as this technology improves. I mean, it's only been a few years. We are in the infancy of it. Mm -hmm. Next link? Next Next link. link. Okay, this article comes from Vice. Scientists are getting eerily good at using Wi-Fi to see people through walls in detail. Ooh. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> so researchers at Carnegie Mellon developed a method for detecting a three-dimensional shape and movements using just the Wi-Fi routers in a room. To do this, they use DensePose, which is a system for mapping pixels on a two-dimensional photo into a three-dimensional shape. So they're looking at the poses of human bodies, which if you're looking at photos, people can put themselves in very weird poses. Mm -hmm. And so the software tries to determine what pose you're in, whether you had puffy clothes, where the actual body would be. So that was developed by the London-based researchers at Facebook's AI research. Mm. Uh, and from there, Carnegie Mellon developed a way to use deep neural networks, our favorite new word, that maps Wi-Fi signals phase and amplitude sent and received by routers to coordinates on the human body. Similar to LiDAR, right? We've had this sort of stuff for a while. LiDAR is just very expensive to mm. do the same kind of job. I mean, I guess the idea is like this technology eventually goes into some kind of goggle in the same way that you've got night vision goggles mm. or, you know, something that is apparently much cheaper and still be able to see in the dark. Right. Or through the wall. Right. So that we can see whether or not there are people in the house. Or... Sure. For like hostage situations. <laughs> right. Or for burglary yeah. situations. Yeah. There's so many options for it. Now, most households in developed countries already have Wi-Fi at home. And this technology may be scaled to monitor the well-being of elder people or just identify suspicious behaviors at <sighs> home. They, they don't go on to mention what these specific <laughs> yeah, yeah, these yeah. suspicious behaviors might include, Racial right? Profiling. Yeah. And this just reiterates the thing that you see sometimes where you're like, oh, I work for this incredibly advanced technology company. And in my house, I have none of that. I don't allow <laughs> an internet connection. I have a 1980s printer because I know firsthand what it's capable of. Right, how much it spies on Oh, me. yeah. Right, you've yeah, seen yeah. Battlestar Galactica. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but those robots are sexy. I mean, they you can't know. deny that. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include How Far Can Vertical Farming Go? A noxious underground landfill fire has burned for weeks in Alabama and inside a secret school for girls in Afghanistan. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.